Your move, creep. Wish me luck, Freezer. You go, Ben Coco. Dino DNA. Son, your ego is writing checks your body can't cash. It's the only thing I know how to do. It's a good-looking boy. I'm a member of the Imperial Senate. That's right, Lord! Welcome to Earth. You crossed the line. You know, that's just like, uh... Your opinion, man. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Retrograde. I am Austin. And I'm George. And this is the podcast where we talk about older movies. We talk about how they were made, how they were received, and whether or not they still hold up. And today we're going to be talking about a classic that we're sure holds up. We're 90% sure it holds up. But we want to make sure, and we just want to rewatch it again. What's the movie we're watching today, Austin? Today we are going to be watching... Terminator 2, the 1991 sequel to Terminator from 1984. Featuring everyone's favorite California governor, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Sure, everyone's favorite. Everyone's favorite, sure. Right. Uh, Maybe the most famous California governor, we'll we'll say that. Um, uh, Not the worst Republican, that's for sure. (laughs) Um, oh Jesus! Yeah, but you know, I I I like Arnold Schwarzenegger as an actor, and maybe as a person, I don't know. I I like the things that he's been saying recently, because there's a lot of guys right now that are like, "Oh, masks are why are you wearing a mask?" You know, Joe Rogan's one of them, and Arnold is someone who's like, "No, you need to wear masks. It's about it doesn't make you less of a man." It hold on, let me let me read exactly what he said. Anyone making COVID-19 masks a political issue is an absolute moron. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he's not wrong. Yeah. That line's very reminiscent of what Tom Hanks said. He's like, you're kind of dumb if you're making this a political issue when it's not. I feel like he's like self-aware, you know, because when you think of action movie stars like Arnold Schwarzenegger, you think of Sylvester Stallone, you think of uh, Steven Seagal, Jean-Claude Van Damme. And I feel like Arnold has, like, he's self-aware enough. He knows what he can do. And he, I don't know. He seems like he has, like, the the best head on his shoulders. You know what I mean? Well, it's funny because we were talking about this outside of the podcast. And we were saying, like, he is kind of like what The Rock is today. But he, back then. Yeah. He is very charismatic. He, they definitely understand on where on the spectrum they lie in, in terms of yeah. acting quality, you know, they're not going to be winning in the Oscars, but they're, but they have a charisma that makes them entertaining to watch. Oh yeah. When I look back at art, like at my own personal life, Arnold was consistently like there. Like I was always watching Arnold Schwarzenegger films consistently, maybe not so much in the past few years, but like, especially growing up, I saw him in Jingle All the Ways, Kindergarten, Kindergarten Cop, the Terminator films, obviously. Uh, I watched those as they were released. And in my older years, I would go back and rewatch some of the films I couldn't. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly The Running Man. Oh, man, The Running Man. That movie is... Oh, man, that's great. Yeah, and Total Recall, which I only... I loved... Saw, I own Total Recall. I only saw Total Recall when the remake came out. And I hadn't seen I hadn't seen the original, so I went back. Oh no! Yeah. Those were those were two of the films that my dad was like was like, you know what? You're a little too young. And after RoboCop, mm-hmm. you're a bit more sensitive than I realized. So, <laughs> um, which he's not. Uh, wrong. Do you know? You know, um, Total Recall was also directed by Paul Verhoeven. Oh, I didn't. Again, underrated yeah. director. Super underrated. 
super you know, underrated. We should actually go back and do Total Recall at some point. You know what? I'm down for that. Because I own it. I don't have to pay for the rental. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a good one to watch. Let's see. Terminator 2. Do you remember where you were when you first saw it? Oh, I was I was I was pretty young. Not so not as young as Robocop. Mm-hmm. This one definitely I will say this. This is a violent film, but it's nowhere near the same amount of violence as Robocop. I was left with a positive impression from this film. Yeah. And after this film, I started giving the thumbs up to everyone. <laughs> the the yeah. thumbs up when he melts in the lava or yes. the it's not lava, it's it's some hot shit. We don't know what it I forget is. what it is. I definitely remember, like, I remember closing my eyes, especially when the T-1000 would come out and, you know, like, murder a bunch of people. But I, yeah. I walked out pretty happy and, you know, thumbs up, thumbs up in everyone. And it was, <laughs> it was definitely enjoyable. So it was rough. Might have been the same age as Robocop. With yeah. these films, it's hard to say because I was so young, but mm-hmm. I could still have vague memories of it. RoboCop, I I very vividly remember freaking out, but this one, just kind of, I remember the aftermath of going to school, and just like, yeah, <laughs> high five, thumbs up in everyone. It was basically like Tobey Maguire in Spider Man Three. <laughs> um, so I don't, I think the first time I saw this movie, it was on TV, so I saw the TV edit, right, mm. where they like, uh, they, there's a line that John Connor has, uh, something, something asshole, that I can't remember. But I never heard the asshole line because you know back in the early 2000s, late 90s, you couldn't say asshole on TV. Oh, how far we've come. <laughs> I know, right? Uh, I would like to, I would just a quick sidebar. I'd like to see what Game of Thrones would have looked like back in the 90s. Oh my like, God. I don't, know if, I don't know if the books were written, but I'm just like thinking. What It'd would... be like t- 30 minute episodes. <laughs> Probably. So you, were, so you were young, but you saw the TV edit. What did you think yeah. of the violence and stuff? Um, I the thing that I remember the most is how scary Robert Patrick was as the T one thousand. I thought that man, that's like this one of the scariest movie villains ever. He's just so unstoppable. Like they shoot him a million times, and it's not like Jason or um, Michael Myers. He he had like he was made of liquid liquid metal. So you could like take different shapes, and so he, his infiltration capabilities were were scary. How he could just go through bars and turn his hands into knives. He just seemed like a really efficient killing machine, like the xenomorph from Alien. I think efficient is the right word because I definitely thought the same thing as a kid. What made me scared was the fact that I I love how you brought out Jason Voorhees and Michael Myers because they scared me, but. They were there while their faces and masks were iconic. What what terrified me about Robert Patrick was the fact that there was a face to this monster. Yeah, I knew what the skeleton of the Terminators looked like. Yeah, when you put Robert Patrick's face to it and just the way he acts, the the level of stoicism he's able to portray. Even as a kid, I knew if I saw someone like that out in the street, I'd be like, something's wrong with them. <laughs> something's wrong with them, you know? Yeah, because it's just just a cold, cold expression and here and that terrified me as a kid a here's lot. The, the reason i wanted to do this movie right now is because i think this is the first mainstream movie to feature a police officer in uniform as the main antagonist i don't think that's ever been done before in a mainstream film 
there's movies there was a movie called like psycho cop or maniac cop or something where like it's a slasher but the it's a crazy cop that's killing people but that you know that was like a million dollar budget movie you know there was also first blood where the cops were the ones antagonizing rambo but i don't think it would it was playing into the fact that they were cops you know and the series like doubled down on the opposite direction for the following films there was also a richard gear movie in 1990 called internal affairs but that was a really small movie like at the it only made 28 million i think at the box office compared to the 500 million for terminator 2 in 91 terminator 2 is has a budget of 94 to 102 million dollars and it made 520 million dollars at the box office like this was out for everybody to see everyone could see robert patrick as a police officer being this horrible unstoppable killing machine okay you know what <laughs> that makes a lot more sense because when you pitched terminator 2 i was like that's just like a random okay i guess i was like it makes more sense to do the first one you're like no it has to be terminator 2 there's a specific reason i was like okay well I'll, well all right the first terminator Arnold Schwarzenegger is the bad guy, right? He goes through a phone book looking for Sarah Connors. Like, that's his plan. This dude, he has access to the police scanners. He's got the... Goes up, knocks on people's doors, and asks them, have you seen this boy? Like, he's acting like a cop. He's using his cop status to complete his objective. And I think that's what makes him so scary. That's interesting. So I'm, I didn't grow up being scared of cops that wasn't something i had to deal with as a kid that came on years later but i always thought it was interesting how this guy could just easily get out of situations just because he's like oh i'm a police officer i thought that was like a fantastic power for a villain to have yeah as a kid because yeah. it was like this guy could do anything because he mm -hmm. he's liquid he could go through bars he could take a bunch of hits and nobody's gonna second guess that he's the bad guy if anything if you put robert patrick and Arnold Schwarzenegger together, like, if you pointed at little George, it's like, who's the villain? I'd look at the big, burly in man. In the biker jacket. That looks like he could tear me in two. I'd be like, oh, that's the villain. Look at look at those glasses. Of course he's the bad guy. Mm -hmm. You know, I think I've, that's I've always been afraid of cops. Like, I remember, do you remember the D.A.R.E. program? <sighs> yeah, I, I remember that shit. <laughs> <laughs> I remember there was a... There's a police officer that come to us and talk about us and how marijuana is the gateway drug and blah, blah, blah. And I remember he had a question box and somebody used my name to write like how many donuts do you eat a day and put it in the, the question box. And I was so scared that the cop would see that and see my name and then know this kid's a troublemaker, you know? So I went through the question box and I couldn't find it and I just had... Like, the horrible, horrible anxiety every time he went for the question box. <laughs> Did he ever pull out your question? I don't know. But I remember one time he looked at me. He pulled out a question, looked at me, and then crumpled it up and threw it away. Oh, he found it. I don't know. Oh, he definitely <laughs> did. My fear of authority came from high school. With the police? or No, not with the police, but it was with my AP bio teacher. But ever since then, I feel like I've had an a fear of authority figures, mm -hmm. bosses, police officer, teachers, because it was after the AP exam and in bio class, you know how you have your electrical outlets on the table. Mm -hmm. So it was after the AP bio exam 
and there was an outlet in front of me and my teacher was still teaching. I'm like, oh, fuck, just stop it. You know, she was doing her job, but I was irritated. So I started messing with the box or with the with the outlet box. Not I wasn't putting anything in it. I want to reiterate that. I didn't put anything in it, but I was messing with the shielding that was the protective shielding outside of it. And I guess it was loose. And I noticed it. So I touched like the screw in the middle and the box, like the, the outlet exploded. Jesus It went Christ. into like, yeah, it threw out these, it threw out these sparks. And my best friend, Sergio, was sitting next to me and it almost touched him. He was fine. And then my teacher, uh, she was like five foot three, five foot two. She was the, sh- she might've been four feet for all I know. Shortest, <laughs> wonderful lady, just uh, very nice all around. She lost it and i can't blame her i cannot blame her but i've never seen a person go from like in terms of chill to like heated she went from a zero to ten and ever since then i've had an authority a fear of authority (laughs) figures so ever since then whenever i watch films with like cops and stuff i i get a little nervous you think of your teacher from ap bio always always you don't have to include this in the podcast. I'm just, okay. I'm just telling you because I think, I think it's a funny story. All right. Letting you know. Letting, you, you want if you can, but I'm letting Austin know. Okay. So this movie came out, like I said, in 1991. Actually, July 2nd. I thought 3rd. I'm seeing two, several different. I saw July 1st. I saw July 3rd. Okay, July 1st in Los Angeles. July 3rd in the rest of the, rest of the United States. Oh, wide release. Yeah, wide release. Yeah, so it's almost, we're recording this almost on the anniversary of Terminator 2's release. Just to give you an idea of what other movies came out during that time, I have the a list of the top 100 worldwide box office movies of 1991. Number one is Terminator 2, Judgment Day. Number two is Beauty and the Beast. Number three. The, uh, the wait, wait, the Disney one? Yeah, 91. Oh, Wow. A tale as old as time. Oh. Uh, number three is Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. The one that everyone thinks is bad now. The one with Kevin Costner and... Um, Where he doesn't have a British accent? Yes. <laughs> uh, Hook with Robin Williams. Wait, no, was, Hook was number four? Hook was number four. Okay. Uh, do you remember that movie? No, oh, you, I, I don't. You don't remember Rufio? No, I have no <laughs> recollection of that film at all. The Silence of the Lambs. Number five? Number five. JFK. Man, Kevin Costner had a, a year. Oliver Stone, right? Yeah, Oliver Stone. Okay, so just real quick. James Cameron, Steven Spielberg, Oliver Stone, the guy that did Silence of the Lambs, Joseph... I, I have the DVD right here. Let me find his name. Uh, no, Jonathan Deem. Like, damn! It was a good time to be at the movie theater then. I remember a lot of these movies. I remember we used to watch Hook a lot. Never really watched Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, though. Beauty and the Beast, like, we had the VHS tape, and that was... You know when you watch a VHS tape and rewind it so many times, it degrades the quality? Yeah. That was our Beauty and the Beast. Oh, that was Star Wars for me. Oh, and Star Wars. Yeah. Yeah, our our Star Wars VHS are like, wow, okay, can I just... Real sidetrack, like, can we just talk about how different the box office today looks like compared to back then? Because mm. you had one animated film that's going to go down as one of the best animated films of all time, mm-hmm. a sequel to an action film. You have an original film based off of like a weird pseudo spinoff of Peter Pan. And then you've got JFK, a biopic on the, on the assassination of JFK. Like that is a strange box office. Yeah, I, but already you're seeing sequel, reinterpretation, 
a sequel to a book. Like there's the Silence of the Lambs is not the first Hannibal Lecter movie. Oh, it's not. I thought you were gonna say it's based on the book. It I'm is like, yeah. based off of a book, but that book was turned into a movie years before with Brian Cox. I think it's called Manhunter. Oh. It takes. I think it takes place before that chapter in Hannibal, in the Hannibal Lecter universe. I don't know. <laughs> uh, Wait, it basically is its own universe at this yeah, point. Yeah, and then there's Red Dragon. Mm-hmm. Then there's the Hannibal and the NBC show. Yeah, it's a universe. This is also the year of the Rocketeer and Point Break. Point Break. Uh, New Jack's New Jack City. Boys in the Hood. <gasps> oh wow! Ninety one was a fantastic year. We're gonna do so many movies from ninety one. <laughs> yeah. We already did two from 86, and I think we're going to do another one. Oh, we're going to do a lot from 91 for sure. Yeah. So that's that. It made $500 million, which was a big deal back then. Yeah. Like the, the movie that was, I guess, in second place was Beauty and the Beast, an animated film, $438 million. And Terminator 2 is, like you said, an action movie that's pretty violent. It also has an R rating. Which you know, yeah. usually means this movie is not going to you know, make a lot of money. But it did. It's, I think it's one what? of the highest grossing R-rated movies of all time. Well, it got dethroned by Joker. No, I'm saying Terminator 2 is one of the highest. Oh, okay, okay. I was like, bro, I'm pretty... Joker just came out. I'm pretty sure it's the highest. But, okay. What was the budget for this film? The budget for this film was 90, uh, $94 to $102 million. 94 to 102 million. Yes. Uh, and it made over 500. It made over 500 million dollars. The first Terminator had a budget of 6.4 million and the box office return was 78.3 million. So it's a very low budget movie that made a lot of money, uh, especially because its budget was so low. So that when they made the second one, the budget was higher than the money that the first one made. Damn, so they, they were like, okay. We're doubling down the money. on Terminator. Honestly, it was a smart move. You give it to the guy, you're giving it to the guy that made Aliens. Like, this man knows how to, this, no man, this man knows how to follow up a story. Yeah, and I think the way that the special effects work in that movie are like, is, it wasn't anything anyone's ever seen before. The way that he would move through stuff and the, I... I remember the L.A. River car chase. Like, that was something that I that sticks yep. with me. And how it just escalates. Like, first he's on his little bike, and then uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger picks him up, puts him on the chopper, and then the T-1000 commandeers the semi-truck and just breaks through the, the barrier and drives into the... Man, that wild ride. No, it, that car chase, it brings back good memories. Yeah. Uh, it's been, yeah, it's been a minute. It's been a few years, but... I'm excited to rewatch this. Yeah, me too. I, want, I think there's one more thing I wanted to bring up. At the time of its release, with a budget of 94 to 102 million, Terminator 2 was the most expensive movie ever made. Really? <laughs> Terminator 2? Yes. At the time of its release. I'm going to find like a, a quote, because this is just a Wikipedia. There's not even a citation for it. So I'm going to, like, when we come back with the more research part of the episode, after we watch the film and everything, we're going to go and pull up some actual stuff that's been vetted. All right. Damn. They really doubled down. Almost an exponential increase of the budget. And it paid off? Yeah. Uh, so you think it's going to hold up? I think it's going to hold up, especially if you look at it as like the 
I think it's going to hold up when you look at the villain as a cop that's abusing his power and his privilege. It's going to mean a lot more now, I think. Well, see, that's right. I'm not sure if that's going to hold up because I don't I'm not sure that was the intention. I think and again, I could be wrong, but I think what James Cameron was going for was, okay, I need another Terminator that can outdo Arnold Schwarzenegger. So we're going to make him even more indestructible by making him liquid. But we're also going to have him have the ability to camouflage. And he's like, what's one of the most advantageous positions you could be in being a police officer? So he'll be able to people will get out of his way. They'll answer his questions. It just from a logistical standpoint, it makes a lot of sense making him a police officer. I think it's interesting. There's some subtext there. I don't know if it was totally intentional. Okay. We will see you in a bit. The first Terminator was programmed to strike at me in the year 1984, before John was born. It failed. The second was set to strike at John himself when he was still a child. As before, the Resistance was able to send a lone warrior, a protector for John. It was just a question of which one of them would reach him first. All right, everybody, we are back from watching Terminator 2 Judgment Day. And I really, really like this movie. I think it still holds up. It's fantastic. And uh, just like you, I saw the first Terminator and then I saw the second one. Yes. I saw him back to back. And rewatching the first one, I thought it was really good. I really, really liked the first one. It's a little dated. Yeah. But it's still fantastic. And... Because it's been a minute since I've seen Terminator 2, I was thinking, wow, like this Terminator, the original Terminator is pretty great. I wonder if the second one will be able to match the quality. I was a little worried, <laughs> but watching the, re-watching the second one, I was like, oh no, the second one's definitely better. Definitely um, better. It doesn't take away anything from the first one, but it's incredible. Yeah. Just the, uh, the, the, the level of quality that they reached in the second one. Yeah. Uh, I, re- I saw an interview with James no, not James. Arnold Schwarzenegger, and he's talking about how he could tell how much James Cameron grew as a filmmaker from doing the first one to the second one. And you can really tell if you watch the movies back to back. Like, man, this guy just got better at making movies in general. Well, it's you know? it's well, it's funny because he got better, but he was he was he always had a great starting point. If comparing the stuff between the characters in the second one compared to the first movie, so much better. Oh my god, Hobbs. He's just yelling. <laughs> so if you haven't seen Terminator or Terminator 2, the movie that we're actually going to be talking about, uh, basically, it's about machines taking over mankind. The people have developed a sophisticated AI and they give it control over the U.S. military, and then the machines determine that humans are no longer fit for the planet Earth and start a nuclear apocalypse and try to execute the remaining human survivors. Some of them they put to work in camps and stuff. But the humans eventually win this war, 
So as a last-ditch effort, the machines use like time-traveling technology and send a machine back into the past to kill the mother of the savior of the resistance. So they send Arnold Schwarzenegger back in time to kill Sarah Connor. But the human resistance, led by John Connor, he's like, well, we're going to send back a protector. And he sends back uh, Kyle Reese, one of his best soldiers. And at the end of the movie, you find out that Kyle Reese is actually John Connor's dad. So he sends his dad back in time to protect his mom, eventually impregnate the mom, and then dies. And then Sarah has to raise this child knowing that he's going to be the savior of mankind. And that's how the, the first one ends. Like, they, they, kill, they kill the Terminator. And in the second one, it takes place 10 years, right? Is it 10 years after? 10 years. Uh, yes. Around 10 years after. Because uh, J- John Connor is supposed to be 10 years old in this movie. Sarah Connor has raised John Connor to be a savior. So she's taught him all these skills and they've been like living kind of off the grid. They lived in Nicaragua for a while. And eventually she tries to blow up a computer building and it gets arrested and put in the Pescadero State Hospital, which is a fictional mental prison, I guess. And this time they, the machines send back another Terminator and the human resistance sends back another protector and for the first half of the movie, you're not sure which one is which. Because they send Arnold back, and he was the bad guy in the first one. And they send back this other guy who kind of looks like Kyle Reese. And then the big reveal is that it's actually Arnold that's the good guy. He's the protector. And he bonds with John Connor. And then John Connor realizes that his mom was telling the truth about these future machines. So he feels really bad, and they go to rescue the mom, Sarah Connor. Sarah Connor finds out that the creator of Skynet, the AI that controls everything, is a Michael Dyson. So she gets her own plan to, like, kill Michael Dyson, and her son is like, no, you can't do that. So they chase after her to get her to stop trying to kill Michael Dyson. And when they tell Dyson what his invention will lead to, he's immediately on board to destroy it. And they go over and blow up the... A computer lab where Skynet is being developed. Michael Dyson dies from the police and the enemy Terminator follows them and eventually the chase leads to a steel mill where they finally kill the, the liquid Terminator and to prevent that future, that apocalyptic future from ever happening the Terminator tosses himself in so that no piece of the Cyberdyne cyborg technology exists. And that's the end of the movie. Okay, so that's what Terminator 2 is about in a nutshell. Um, so in the first movie, the bad guy, Arnold Schwarzenegger, he's a, like a cyborg. He's got flesh, and he's, but there's a metal endoskeleton underneath. This time, the bad guy is made of like a, a liquid mercury, liquid metal type dude. So he can like take the shape of other things and like become other people and stuff and use his limbs as like knives and blades and stuff and stab people the t-1000 is the liquid terminator played by robert patrick and he's he is relentless he does not stop he and it's funny because arnold schwarzenegger constantly went after sarah connor in the first film but this new one this t-1000 is even scarier just because he can completely inhabit different people's bodies not just their voices he could become 
uh, material objects, as we see in the ward where he he uh, yeah. camouflages to be to look like the floor. Yeah, and he's a lot harder to kill. Yeah, he's a lot harder to kill. Yeah, so I I really 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 like talking about the very beginning of the movie. The second one, though. Yeah, in the second one. In the very beginning of Terminator 2, it starts with Future War. The humans versus the machines. Mm-hmm. The first movie also started with it, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you see the miniatures of the tanks rolling over the miniatures of the human skulls. Except this time, it looks so much better. It's so much more complex. You see an army of T-800s, like, walking around with their cyber or their uh, plasma rifles and more cars exploding. That to me, uh, to me demonstrates how great the first one is and how such a great foundation James Cameron has. Mm -hmm. It's funny because it's almost like James Cameron ripped those, like took the same uh, setups, took the same actions and put them in the second one. But because he had a bigger budget, was able to finally realize his vision. Yeah. For example, in the first one, Kyle Reese gets in a car and there's a gunner on top of it. Yeah. In in like a sedan style car. And they get, they flip over. From one of those like Skynet, like, they almost look like, like drones almost, but they're, they're big. And that exact same action happens in the second one, but with a bigger Mm -hmm. budget. Because he, he realized this is how I see it. He's like my he's like I had the right idea when I was filming the first Terminator. I had the right idea in set pieces, action, designs and stuff, but we are going to we're just going to improve on it on a quality level because now we have the right. money to. Yeah, that whole sequence it ends with the Terminator theme song like the dun 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 dun, dun with the, the slow like dolly in on the Terminator endoskeleton in flames. And I, if that doesn't get you hyped for the rest of the movie, I don't know what will. Oh, it, and it still holds up, too. It still got me yeah. excited. Like, even, like, sitting on my on my couch in 2020, that gets me pumped. And then after that, you have that whole sequence where... Well, actually, you have Linda Hamilton's narration saying there's, they sent back two machines, one to protect and one to destroy. The only question was which one would get there first, right? So they don't tell you which one is the bad one. And I wanted to touch on that because growing up, I don't remember which film I saw first, the first Terminator or the second one. I'm pretty sure I saw the second one. But because of the culture that, because of the, because of how relevant this film was socially, I always knew that that Arnold Schwarzenegger was the Terminator. And I think growing up, I always associated him with being a good Terminator. Yes, because Arnold, after Terminator 1984, he would go on to play a bunch of hero characters. You know, he was in Commando, he was in Total Recall, Red Sonja, and just one more. Oh, The Running Man and Predator. He's, he's playing heroes. So when you people thought of the Terminator, you know, they thought of Arnold, their hero. There was definitely a point where I was like, when I was thinking about the first one, oh, like he's bad in this one? I think I might might have seen the Terminator Two first or the first one first, but there was definitely a point where I realized I thought term, I thought Arnold Schwarzenegger was the good guy, and I think it was the way he was being the roles he was taking and stuff. But rewatching this film, I know that Arnold Schwarzenegger is the good Terminator, and I know Robert Patrick is the bad one. But I was trying to think, okay, if I'm someone who just saw the first one back in 1984, and I'm watching the sequel seven years later, I'm thinking. Do I know 
like, is there an uncertainty about which one is the good one? Because you're right. Robert Patrick resembles Kyle Reese a little bit. He's a cop. When both the T-800 and the T-1000 are teleported back in time, they both physically hurt people. But neither, none of the, neither of them kill anyone. Yeah. Um, we don't see any of them. Any, we don't see Robert Patrick's physical capabilities. And he becomes a cop. Right. So I'm definitely trying to think, if I saw this when it was released, do I know which Terminator is the good and bad one? Kind of like putting me in the same spot as John Connor or Linda Hamilton. But having seen the trailer, that the audience always knew because the entire trailer is about he's now yeah. good. He's the good guy. Once he was programmed to destroy the future. I don't know what it's like to try to kill one of these things. Now his mission. Get down. Is to protect it. Come with me if you want to live. Yeah, that's that was the so originally it was just the poster, right? With the him on the motorcycle with a shotgun. Mm -hmm. It just said uh, it's nothing personal. Then there was a really short teaser showing a bunch of T800s being assembled, and then it it ends with them like putting the skin over one of them, and it's Arnold Schwarzenegger, Terminator Two. Coming to theaters soon, whatever. And then they released that trailer where they showed you, this time he's back for good. They have him in the trailer say, come with me if you want to live, yeah. which is Kyle Reese's line from the first film. If you were watching all the trailers and everything, you would know, oh, he's the good one. But the first, like, what, 20 minutes of that movie is all, you don't know which one's which. Now, if you don't know which one's which, I think the surprise is it just hits better. Well, that scene, I mean? that scene in the mall where th where they're going after John kind of hits a little bit harder, which is why I think the trailer kind of spoiled it a little bit. And I think it would have yeah. been better as a nice surprise if you think, oh, right. man, like he's back. And like they sent another version of the T-800, except like now he's going to now he's going to chase this 10 year old kid. Yeah. But I think it, they kind of they just gave it away too easily. Like now he's back for good. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Terminator 2 Judgment Day. This time he's back for good. Trust me. Yeah, I don't. I Well, the thing is, they spent so much money on that liquid Terminator effect. Why would they hide it in the trailers? You know, I think that's what their thinking was. And also, like, Arnold's a, a hero to people, you know? So I think they wanted to just sell it on that. But I don't think that they needed to. No, I don't think they needed to either. Because I was definitely trying to think, I was trying to think, wow, if they had hid this in the marketing, this would be great. Because you think Arnold Schwarzenegger's bad, you see Robert Patrick, and he's a cop. So it's like, oh, that's a, it's a neat surprise. And especially when the T-800 runs into John in the back of the mall, where John's running from him. Yeah. Knowing that he's good kind of takes away some of the tension. Yeah, because he gets there first, and then he pulls out the shotgun, and it's, oh shit, John's dead. And then when you see the T-1000, and Schwarzenegger says, Get down. There's a bit of relief, but then it's also like, oh yeah. shit. Okay, so this is the bad guy. And that's when you see his liquid form. Yeah. And you're like, oh. And then you see that he's stronger than, than Arnold. Faster and stronger. Because he, he, don't forget his run. His run is, is terrifying. It's amazing. I, I think some of the marketing messed that up. But, but I think, you know, that's, that's not how they do trailers. That's not how they did trailers back then. They didn't mind spoiling 
big plot points in them to get people to come see the movie. This is why I like uh, Marvel trailers the most because they know exactly what to keep in and what to keep out, you know? Yeah. My, mild spoilers for Far From Home uh, for any, anyone on the planet who hasn't seen it. In Spider-Man Far From Home, it's revealed that uh, Mysterio is actually a villain. But the trailers hid that from us. If, if anything, yeah. the trailers framed him as a hero. And it's kind yeah. of a neat surprise. But if this trailer took yeah. the same model as Terminator 2, it would have been, he's pretending to be good, but he's really bad. Bad to the yeah. bone. Be, like, I know somewhat of the Spider-Man franchise, you know, so I know Mysterio is a bad guy. But they still hid it in the trailers. So, like, the casual fan, you know, someone who only knows Marvel through the Marvel Cinematic Universe might not know that. So that's a real cool like reveal. I like that trickery that trailers have been have gotten used to now. Yeah. They'll even show deleted scenes and like they'll do shots just for the trailer that don't exist in the final movie. And I, I really like that. Um like that being said though I I still prefer I still I'm not prefer but I, I I really like I still like the Terminator 2 trailer because it's a great movie. But there was maybe a missed opportunity there. James Cameron was very intentional in his filmmaking. Yeah. So I, I mentioned before, we like in the first part of this podcast, why I wanted to do this movie. Because I think it's one of the first movies to show a police officer, specifically an LAPD police officer, as the main antagonist. There have been other movies before with cop villains, but there, there haven't been any $100 million movies with cop villains. You know, that there haven't been any $100 million movies before this, but that I, I believe that that was a choice. And that watching the movie again, do you think that it was a choice? Yes and no. I, I'm undecided about how I feel about that. Undecided. All right. Let me lay out the evidence. Go for it. So the, the first thing that the T-1000 does is he dispatches a policeman and assumes his role. This liquid Terminator can take the form of anything, right? Like he could disguise himself as Sarah Connor and then go for John that way. But he doesn't do that. You know, he goes for the police officer and he stays as a police officer throughout the rest of the film. And he even becomes a like CHP police officer at one point, mm -hmm. taking the aviators, which is like a cop uh, preferred brand or preferred style of sunglasses for police officers. Mm -hmm. He gets the helmet and he turns into the floor briefly and then turns into another cop. A security guard at the... That hospital is technically a prison. So I'm going to call him a cop. Fair enough. Okay. <laughs> uh, he does transform into his mother at the very end. And then he transforms into his foster mother just for the shot uh, of her calling John. But every time he pursues, it's always a cop. So I'm like, that's, that's got to be a choice. So in like recently with the Ahmaud Aubrey murder, George Floyd murder, Breonna Taylor murder, there is this quote from James Cameron that went viral. I don't know if he's, you must have not seen it because you still don't think it was a choice. I should give you the context for the quote. So there's this book written by Rebecca Keegan in published in 2010 called The Futurist, The Life and Films of James Cameron. Now he's, uh, pitching the idea of the T-1000 to special effects makeup creator, Stan Winston. Have you heard of him? Uh, the, name's, the name sounds familiar. He does a lot of like creature stuff. Uh, he worked with James Cameron on the first Terminator and in Aliens. And I think he also worked on Predator as well. 
Oh. So he's trying to pitch in the idea of this liquid mercury man. And Sam Winston's like, I don't see it. I don't have an image. It sounds like a blob of goo. And then later that night, he calls him, Cameron calls him back and then says, I got it. It's a cop. Because it will underline the theme in both Terminator movies, how people, especially in violent jobs, like soldiers and cops, can be barbarized. And then she quotes him directly, saying that this is the quote that went viral. The Terminator films are not about the human race getting killed off by future machines. They're about us losing touch with our own humanity and becoming machines, which allows us to kill and brutalize each other. Cops think of all non-cops as less than they are, stupid, weak, and evil. They dehumanize the people that, are, that they are sworn to protect and desensitize themselves in order to do that job. So this is a quote from the book. This is a quote from the book quoting James Cameron directly. Can you read that one one more time? The Terminator films are not really about the human race getting killed off by future machines. They're about us losing touch with our own humanity and becoming machines, which allows us to kill and brutalize each other. Cops think of all non-cops as less than they are, stupid, weak, and evil. They dehumanize the people that they are sworn to protect and desensitize themselves in order to do that job. You get it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about it. Okay. Because I'm, what, I'm, what I'm doing right now is I'm going through the films in my head. I figured that there was something about so it, the films kind of at their core have this anti, anti anti machine anti digital mentality. Well, it's not just machines, right? Because in Terminator Two, the machine is a good guy. Yeah, you know, it's a little bit more than that. Well, it, I think it's I think it's when humans remove themselves from it. Right. The only ways that you could destroy a Terminator are using mach- man made machineries. Yeah. It's not a coincidence that the first one gets crushed and the second one gets thrown in molten lava or uh, in not molten steel in, in steel. Both machineries, both part of the uh, part of an industry that require people to be there. So I think it's that detachment from man and machine that kind of spells doom for mankind, according to the films. I'm trying to think about that quote specifically because on one end I can I'm undecided really because. And you think about how the police are represented in the two films. Like the first one, they're fucking idiots. But in but in the end of the day, they're not they're not callous towards. I mean, they're they're callous, but they they still try to protect Sarah Connor. And but they're thrown. The police officers in the first one aren't a great force, but they're still essentially the good guys that get terrorized by. They're incompetent, but it's not incompetent police officers is not new imagery and i'm sure and i'm sure before the first terminator that was that was still something cops were presented as good or kind of affable and not really or just kind of incompetent and that was the image that i got from the first one well there's silverman who's the the psychologist like when they when he goes and interviews kyle reese they're all like laughing at the stuff that kyle reese says they're not taking it seriously they're not like looking at him as a human being who needs help. Silverman is looking at him as a human being to be exploited. Yeah, he does. And he's the owner of a prison in the second movie. Yeah, he comes back in the second one. And one of the orderlies licks Sarah Connor's face and then goes around with his baton, like, dragging it across the walls so that the inmates... That's like... I was watching it with Liana, and she's like, "Like that's what guards do in prisons yeah. to get an excuse to beat people." 
Do you know who George Holiday is? Uh, remind me. I forgot. George Holiday was a plumber and owner of a Sony camcorder in 1991. He lived in Lakeview Terrace by the biker bar that's shown in Terminator 2, the, the corral, I think. Um, he managed to catch some of the behind-the-scenes footage of the movie with his camcorder. You know, it, like just the the scene where he steals the bike and gets the shotgun and everything. Mm-hmm. Just right in front of his house. Later, on March 3rd, 1991, on the same tape, caught four police officers beating Rodney King with their batons. Literally around the corner where they filmed that scene. Wait, 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 okay, wait, 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 oh, hold on, hold on, say that again. This guy, George Holiday had his camcorder out and recorded some of the scenes from Terminator, like, you know, behind the scenes kind of thing. Like, oh, cool, they're shooting a movie by my house. Later on that, I don't know if it was the same day, it must have been at night, um, he gets awoken by helicopters and he starts filming Four police officers beating Rodney King. So the same guy that recorded the Rodney King beating is the same guy that recorded behind the scenes of Terminator 2. For himself. You know, they were shooting a movie by his house. Yeah. Just like you can go on Google Maps and see where that scene took place and where the Rodney King beating took place. July 2nd, 1991, the LA Times talked to James Cameron about it. And then he says, in 1991... To me, that's the most amazing irony considering that the LAPD are strongly represented in Terminator 2 as being a dehumanizing force. What the film is about on a symbolic level is the dehumanization we do on a daily basis. And if you think about the way that cops are portrayed just in Terminator 2, like the cops have a higher body count than Arnold Schwarzenegger does in that movie. Well, they killed Dyson. When they killed Dyson, he's... A black, a black man. He's unarmed. Yeah. And for all they know, he's a hostage of Sarah Connor and uh, the T-800. Exactly. And the cops that shoot Dyson, they don't even, like, check for vitals. They don't ask him any questions. They don't look at him as a person. They shoot him without a warning or without anything. The only thing that he says to them is him holding the thing over the detonator, which he's holding up until he dies. What I thought was interesting was when they go back down to the balcony, Sarah and John, the cops, uh, and and with Arnold Schwarzenegger, the cops are like, put your hands up. You know, they do that typical walk out slowly, yada, yada, yada. And then Arnold comes back and they give him warning after warning after warning until they decide to drop him. Also... They know that John Connor is missing. Are they trying to save John Connor or are they trying to get revenge from the Terminator that destroyed a police precinct in 1984? They keep bringing that up. That is, that is a funny detail that they're like the cop from the 1984 police shooting. Yes. I could see it. The police officers, I will agree, the police officers do a lot of shady things. In the first one, they're incompetent and insensitive. In the second one, the, especially the people working at the mental the mental hospital, are shitty. Um, especially the guy that sexually assaults Sarah Connor and Silver and Silverman. Because he, he's just... even He even says it from the first one. He's like, I could build an entire career around this Kyle Reese. He pauses the tape for the police investigation to tell them his plans of making money off of this guy. Yeah. 
And they don't even, like, stop him. There's, there's no ethics with these police officers in either film. Why didn't you bring any weapons? Something more advanced? Don't you have uh, ray guns? Ray guns? <laughs> Show me a piece of future technology. You go naked. Something about the field generated by a living organism. Nothing dead will go. I didn't build a fucking thing. Okay, okay. But this cyborg, if it's metal... Surrounded by living tissue. Oh, right, right. This is great stuff. I could make a career out of this guy. You see how clever this part is? How it doesn't require a shred of proof? And most paranoid delusions are intricate, but this is brilliant. Why were the other two women killed? Most no, you're, you're, and, and that's the thing. But I'm still not totally 100% for that the film is anti-police. I'm, I think maybe what's making me a little bit more hesitant is maybe just the T-1000 not exploiting his power as much as he could have. But, uh, but there are counterpoints to that one because he, he uses the, computer, the police system to find John Connor's uh, foster home. He, ta- he gets a photograph confirmation, which was a thing that the mm-hmm. first Terminator did. He talks to the parents. They give him all the information. He's walking around the mall with no problem. He's asking civilians, like, hey, have you seen John Connor? Have you seen this boy? He's, he's riding around like a cop. And the way he rolls up to the house, very clearly, you see the cop car protect and serve. That's intentional. To get that shot, you have to position the camera in a certain way and have him stop in a very specific place so that we can read very clearly LAPD protect and serve. Canoga Park, typical suburban neighborhood in Los Angeles, but I'm here with the man of the hour, the T-1000 himself, Robert Patrick. What's it like to be back here, man? Josh, I gotta tell you what, it's kind of spooky. <laughs> what do you remember specifically about shooting the scene where you interact with the parents here? Was this early in the shoot? I, I remember the drive up was pretty crucial. It's a static shot, low angle. The car drives in with a to protect and serve logo, boom. Mm-hmm. And then the door swang open. I get out, look around kind of reintroducing me to the audience and then strolled in to, to go and uh, knock on the door. And see, a lot of those details and story beats definitely prove your point. I'm just, I'm still not entirely, that quote that you said about James Cameron is interesting. It's not see, a quote about James Cameron. No, no, it's, it's a quote that he said, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. That quote from James Cameron. Here's the thing. Part of me wants to just say, nah, it's probably something that he just thought up afterwards. But this... But see, I, that's why I bring up the dates of yeah. when, when these books were written and when... Like, the book was written in 2010, and then that article came out a day before the wide release of the movie. The, the writer of the article even says, uh, Terminator 2, a film rumored to have cost anywhere from $80 million to $100 million opens Wednesday. With that kind of money at stake on an action film, it's unusual to hear even a mention of symbolism. Well, and well, and and that's why. And here's the thing: that's why I don't want to discredit James Cameron, though, because look, say what you want about his career, talk making Avatar and stuff, but the man is smart. The man understands storytelling and he understands characters. Damn, I want to rewatch the film now again to see it to see it with this close. I don't know if James Cameron can't convince you. If fate 
can't convince you, if I can't convince you, I don't know what will. I think uh, you've been indoctrinated by all these police are good movies that you're, no, you're struggling to see. No, <laughs> it's it's not that. It's I'm trying to see how how legitimately he was. So with the Terminators, the T1000s effect his abilities right it could be it could play a very like uh, a paranoid movie kind of like invasion of the body snatchers you don't know who is has been gotten you know Mm -hmm. he could be anyone anywhere but he's for 90 percent of the movie he's a cop there's only two instances where he there's three instances where he changes he's a floor he's a mom and sarah connor I want to give James Cameron the credit because he is a f- smart filmmaker, but I also can't see too. Ah, see, I can't. I can't even. I'm still undecided because I keep saying for some reason I'm just not completely sold on the idea. But there are there are actual scenes and evidence to point to him saying, "Yeah, fuck the police." And they're secondary antagonists of of this movie. Because there's a big police shootout, the biggest police shootout ever filmed, according to like the, the making of Terminator 2 documentary. Most of the people that Arnold shoots at are police. Yes. And they're actively trying to stop the protagonist from completing their mission to save the future of mankind. I feel like, I feel like cops usually do that, though, in films. Maybe, well, nowadays, maybe, but back in 91. Yes, exactly. This movie made cop villains more popular. That quote about the Terminator films not being about it's about the detachment of humans and how we're going to see each other as barbaric and stuff. Like. It's not... the, the We said was the, it, the films are not about the human race getting killed off by future machines. They're about us losing touch with our own humanity and becoming machines. To, with James Cameron, there's more. I always figured it was like you can't really... We can't we can't become a completely autonomous. There needs to be that that human connection, right? Like there's that scene where the Terminator is looking at John Connor crying because his mom just berated him, and he's like, "Why are you? What's wrong with your face? What's wrong with your doesn't eyes?" Under, yeah. yeah, doesn't understand emotion. Doesn't understand why he can't just go killing people. And then Sarah Connor kind of becomes the Terminator when she's like, "All right, I gotta kill Dyson to save the world." The Terminator and John Connor stop her. Well, it wasn't. I don't. I don't think it was necessarily them. Yeah. They help her, but I think Sarah. One of my favorite scenes was when she's about to kill Dyson, and John and and John and Arnold Schwarzenegger aren't there. It's just her, Dyson, and his the kid family. and his wife. Yeah, and she finds a way to walk herself back from that. Yeah, which I thought was really not. I thought, I thought was really inspiring because you can make mm. the argument we'll just kill Dyson, you know, but. That's the inhuman thing. That's the machine way of thinking. That's what they're trying to do by sending Terminators back in time to kill John Connor. And something that I liked about that scene that I noticed when I saw the film is she's almost striking at Dyson like a Terminator would. Exactly. She she has the laser. That was intentional. She has the laser sights, which is reminiscent Mm -hmm. of the gun from the first one that had the laser Mm -hmm. sights. Um, And she shoots at him and she empties like two or three magazines she is just constantly shooting, not even giving this man a chance to walk away or get some, get some other, find some other cover. Just like Arnie in the first one. Yeah, and she manages to shoot him in the shoulder, and right when she's about to assassinate him, she kind of walks herself back. Yeah. I could see that kind of leading into it. 
just, you know, it's very easily to become a Terminator. It's the losing touch with your humanity. You know, they're just shoot first, ask questions later, which is what the cops do in this movie. It's, it's really starting to change my mind that you're right, because she almost becomes a Terminator. She has that Terminator mentality and she doesn't kill him, you know, even though it is easier to just kill him. Like their plan to take him over to the to the facility and to destroy him is very complicated. And there's a lot of possibilities that could go wrong. In the end of the day, the easiest solution would just have been to kill him. But here's a man who doesn't. And something that Dyson said that I really like is you're judging me based on something I haven't even done. He did not have the wrong intentions. He was not a villain. No, you know, he's one of the most sympathetic characters in this movie. Yeah. And even from his first scene, he's really sympathetic. You could see kind of like the, the new employee kind of nervous. He kicks over the trash can. He can't really utter what he's trying to say. And the guy's like, all right, let's let's go. I, I think the way he interacts with some of the people working with him are really nice. And there was yeah. that scene in particular in the house. I think it's, you know what? That scene in the house is what convinced me. No, you're right. You're, you're, you're right. right. Okay. I could see it now. It's that scene. An hour later. (laughs) Well, I was, cause for some reason, I think what was holding me back was saying, yes, there are, there are these little things, these little scenes that point to, to what he's saying, his quote from the book, but there's not a scene specifically where that happens. But then I remembered that house scene where Sarah Connor does become a Terminator she she has this lethal precision and she has every reason it, it, i mean she has every, in a fucked up way she has every reason to kill dyson they almost killed her son they've been chased this entire this entire time she's been in prison for a large chunk of her life and she keeps having these nightmarish visions of kids being blown to bits and burning alive and humanity destroying yeah. and it's because of this man and what he's going to create. Yeah. And regardless, she still spares him because she knows that it's the wrong thing to do. And that scene, okay, I'm co- I'm convinced. That was it. Took me a minute, but I'm. So I'm, are you gonna say Terminator Two is anti-cop? I yeah. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go so far as say that yeah. Also, along with cops, I think there's uh, you could extrapolate this idea to. Well, no, it doesn't work with Dyson because Dyson. Dyson doesn't treat anyone barbarically. There's still a mystery in this movie that we don't get resolved. Who got the Terminator chip and Terminator hand from the auto factory? Yes. Who gave it to Dyson? Because and yes. there, and they have that quote where he's like, the the new employee asks him, so where, "Where'd you find it?" He's like, "I asked the exact same question," and they said, "Don't ask." And that's still a mystery. So it's yeah, there, so it's, it's like this... some unknown like corporate entity that's making these decisions. Specifically, more than just anti-cop, I'd say that this film has a very anti-corporation, anti-corporate America kind of mentality. Yeah. So it's kind of like, this isn't in our purview. We're going to uh, keep going at it, and we're going to make sure it doesn't fail. Well, how are you going to make sure it doesn't fail? Eh, well, you know. Don't ask. Don't, don't ask, exactly. Put your head down, work hard. Yeah. Uh, anyway... So now that we've talked about that to it at length, I wanted to talk about the visual aspects of the T-1000. So you've never seen the movie The Abyss, right? No, I've never seen it. So The Abyss was this really ambitious project that James Cameron had ever since he was like a teenager or something about 
like a movie taking place underwater with like deep sea divers or that does not surprise me at all yeah this dude loves water <laughs> the uh, see this man would love to live underwater yeah and he, for the shoot of this movie he kind of did he apparently he would watch dailies of this movie underwater they had to like build giant tanks to put the actors in and they had to get training and it was a nightmare to film a bunch of stuff went wrong this was water world before water world <laughs> <laughs> we should do water world yeah so in the movie The Abyss, uh, there's like aliens underwater and they make contact with the human like scientists. And the first one of the first ways they do that is they have this like water snake like come from the, <laughs> the ocean and it goes over and makes contact with the people and it like morphs into the, one of like um, what's her name? Mary Elizabeth Mastran. Antonio makes her face and it just she like sticks her tongue out and it sticks its tongue out and then it goes to Ed Harris and makes his face and then Michael Bean like the bad uh, military guy closes the door on the water snake and it like goes away very brief moment in the film but it served as a like proof of concept of making James Cameron's vision of a liquid metal man apparently he had this idea to make a liquid terminator from the very beginning, from the first Terminator, but determined that the special effects weren't ready at the time and it would be too expensive. Originally, there's supposed to be two Terminators, one that gets dispatched, like a metal one, like the T-800, and then another liquid one. Um, so I guess they shelved it until 1991, where they did the same thing with the, the water tentacle, except now it has to entirely create a humanoid figure walking around with realistic movements. It's not just a floating head. No one had ever done that before. And they didn't even know if they could do it. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a quote from the actor who actress who plays Janelle, the foster mom. Mm -hmm. They were trying to explain to her what the scene where she answers a phone, kills the foster dad, and then the hand morphs back into human hand. And she didn't understand it. She's like, okay, whatever. They didn't know what was going to happen until they saw it, you know? The effect of like having the Terminator be like a liquid Mercury dude was a combination of practical effects from Stan Winston, the guy I mentioned earlier, and computer-generated effects from ILM, Industrial Light and Magic, like mm -hmm. the George Lucas company. It's kind of funny. Like they, they painted like an actual grid over Robert Patrick's body and had him walk around. And they captured it with two synced cameras to get all the visual data they needed to see the way his body moved. It's, it was like a motion capture suit. <laughs> and then they used this like laser scanning process to capture Robert Patrick's expressions. So there's video of it. Like he's just like making a certain gesture with his face. And then this camera, like this laser that goes around his face, like in 360 degrees. Then it goes into the computer. And then at, towards the end of this like visual documentary, they say that what might take up five seconds of screen time would take like eight weeks to complete. Oh, to, to render in. Yeah. It's funny because that I recently just found, I saw something similar about how Christopher Nolan's uh, black holes in Interstellar took hours and hours and days to render out a few seconds. Mm -hmm. Our computing technology has gotten so much better, but we're still 
try, trying to innovate. Yeah. And we're still running into a lot of the same problems. Yeah, they ran into a lot of problems doing this, but they always, you know, they were able to come up with solutions. That's what I like. It's Terminator 2 is such a perfect case scenario because you have a film that's pushing the envelope in terms of of visual effects and stuff, but it's still such a groundbreaking film. It's still like yeah. still so well done and it's entertaining and you and you can't you can just enjoy the entire film without having to say, "Yeah, the story is shit, but the VFX are amazing." You know what I mean? Yeah. Um it's kind of like it's kind of like tr- uh, Jurassic Park in a way. Yeah, another innovative film. Yeah, that is extremely well done. What I think seals the deal, what makes it timeless, is how they combine the practical effects with the computer-generated effects. I was watching some behind-the-scenes stuff of, you know when the Terminator gets, the T-1000 gets shot in the hallway and again towards the end and the steel mill? How like this, like, you could see the liquid mercury? Yeah. I thought that was a digital effect. It's a practical? Yeah. You you mean like the, the the chunks of mercury that are impacted when the shotgun hits them? Yes. Oh wow! I thought it was digital. Yeah, I had no idea I, until I was I was like watching it. I'm like, oh, this is just a movie. Wait, no, this is this is like a behind the scenes kind of thing. You can see the cameras moving, and then the you know I'm assuming James Cameron saying, okay, another shot. Okay, one more. Go. You know, and they're like pulling these these like squibs or whatever. I don't know what they're called. That like they just pop and it shows the the liquid mercury. <laughs> and then there's that part where he gets split in half and then he, he pulls the pole or the, the rod out of him through the side of his stomach. Yeah. When he gets split in half, that's also a practical effect. And you can see like the anim- the complex animatronic puppet that they used for the effect. Crazy, because I guess he's like hiding the rest of his actual body behind it, because the angle is just so that you can't see it. You know, mm-hmm. it's all practical effects. Like they, they just know when to blend it, and the fact that he's liquid mercury. Uh, in a quote, oh, I forget which article it's from, but they say that they chose mercury because mercury doesn't look real in real life. Like it's just so impossibly reflective. Yeah. Which would definitely worked in their favor. Yes. They knew the limitations and they knew how to push them so they don't like... It's not obvious that it's fake, you know? It's not obvious that you're watching a movie, even though you are. I'm sorry, I had to look it up, the scene, but he does split them with the beam. Yeah. And he kind of splits his body in half. I see what you're saying. Yeah. And then he pulls it out. And when he pulls it out, that's a digital effect. Mm-hmm. But everything... It's all wobbly. Yeah. Man. It's crazy, man. Well, that's that's the thing. It's... And when you're watching it, even though this is an old film, yeah, you suspend your disbelief a little bit. Like when he pulls that tube out through through yeah. the side of him, yeah, okay, it doesn't look amazing. But there's still there's still an amazing thing when you add practical and visual effects together. Mm-hmm. That it scene, sells it. And that scene where he's where he's uh where the T one thousand's hitting Arnold with the with a giant steel beam still has an impact because it's visceral it's in your face it's very yeah. practical and that's like that a lot of films lack that visceralness mm-hmm. they just like oh we'll fix it in post yeah and then post looks bad i think one of the films that does it nowadays really good is like john wick but with john wick it's still it's still not able to maybe just because of the because of the action but it's not as brutal as it is when the two terminators are fighting because these are two pieces of machine clashing yeah which that's not, and that I'm not, I'm not saying John Wick 
you know, because that's that's a man still. That's he's human, but that's probably the closest thing that comes when it that comes close to visceral action. Yeah. It, so like, there's multiple aspects of it too. So there's the visual effects, you know, there's the computer-generated effects and the practical effects, but there's also the guy playing it. Can we talk about how? great robert patrick is as the t-1000 he's incredible he actually like he does not say a lot he's honestly not even in the film that much in the third act of the film he's kind of absent during that whole um heist part where they're going into the building Mm -hmm. he's in the motorcycle but he's not he doesn't actively fight them in that building in fact, he barely drives in it. We just get that visual of him driving the motorcycle. Yes. Hey, that's a nice bike. That's really the only scene that he's in towards that part of the film. But he's incredible. Yeah. I love how he just keeps his open, his eyes wide open when he's shooting. Yeah. Apparently, like he, he's like trained to do that. Yeah. I, to keep his and, eyes open as he's shooting. Which is funny because you think about like, you. I've never fired a gun, but I'm sure if I did, I'd keep blinking and stuff. But... He had training to that's a that's a police officer training. That is the thing that you have to do. You cannot blink when you're shooting when you're firing your gun because you might just hit someone you're not intending to. Like that stops them anyway. That's not exactly. But <laughs> I love that it's that coldness. It's that so intense. And yeah. that's how he auditioned. They he didn't get to read the script when he auditioned. They he just knew he had to have a quote an intense presence. And was sense aware. And it, you can see his audition. And he looks creepy as hell. It's amazing. It's. He. he it, it's, almost, it's funny because we're talking about him like he's intense and cold. He embodies a police officer so well. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. Like he's not a villain that's like. He has one goal. He's not a complex villain who has a tragic. No he's a machine and he's got to kill this kid. But it is. He does a fantastic job at it. There's so many scenes of him that I'll just never forget. Like when he first gets in that cop car and it's like looking around. Mm -hmm. Like he looks like a cop. My favorite scene is when Sarah looks at Arnold Schwarzenegger in the hospital. And he pulls out his hand in that hallway. He pulls out Mm -hmm. his hand and he's like, come with me if you want to live. Where he passes through, like where they look at each other. There's that standoff with Dr. Selba, like uh the doctor in standing between them. Dr. Silverman, yeah. That scene alone is so great. <laughs> it's this man is this machine is outnumbered. But he 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 just runs towards them. Yeah. He walks like I love the way he walks through the like he phases through the bars. And the, ca- the and gun the, gets caught. The gun gets caught. And he has to like Oh, I guess I had to turn my hand. So, like, it sells the, the realism of it, you know? That, like, he's liquid, the gun's not. Yeah. It, that whole scene alone is amazing. And he, the way he opens the elevator. Oh, yeah, with, the, with his two, like, pitchfork kind of things. <laughs> they, they, they morph into those, those, like, the hooks. They morph into that whatever shape a, he wants, which is, um, which is yeah. amazing. It's a great weapon to have. It's funny because he's... He leaves such a huge impression, but not doing that much. I mean, from what it appears in the... I'm sure there's a lot happening. Like, again, not blinking when he... Yeah. Not blinking when he shoots his gun. Kind of turning on the charisma slightly when he's around people. Like, when he's pretending to be an officer. It's these subtle things, but he's not, he's not doing 
uh, Heath Ledger Joker level of intricacy. You know what I mean? There's a lot to the Joker performance, which is the which is the point, which is the point for that character. Here he is a he is playing a robot pretending to be a police officer, so it is cold and intense. But I guarantee yeah. you, he is just as iconic, if not more so, than Heath Ledger's Joker. I I'll, I'll say he's. Well, it's 1991, right? This movie came out, and we're still making references to him. A lot of people, when they look, when they see a picture of Robert Patrick, they'll be like, "Oh, it's the it's a Terminator." The T1000 made its presence in other films. Do you know that? No, how? Well, in two films specifically, 1992's Wayne's World. There's a scene where um, Michael Myers's character—I forgot his name. Do you remember their names? It's no. Garth and. I, I don't remember those films. Shoot. Not Garth. Wayne. Why did I forget Wayne? <laughs> or uh, Michael Myers' character, Wayne, is like driving around and the police officer pulls him over and then he comes in as Robert Patrick and he's like, have you seen this boy? And then Wayne like <laughs> freaks out and drives away. And then in 93, the action comedy last action hero, there's a scene where Arnold and the, the kid go into a police station station and they pass by robert patrick as the t-1000 really yeah it's very brief but, but it's but definitely robert patrick robert patrick in a cop outfit yes and then the kids like looks at him all funny and then he tries to get arnold's attention He's like hey did you see that guy um oh that's pretty great in 2005 the marine starring john cena there's a scene where he's um, chasing Robert Patrick's character, and you know how in when the chase in the L.A. River, like um, Robert pa uh, the T one thousand, he get he drives under a like really tight overpass, yeah, and it cuts off the top of his truck, mm -hmm. yeah, and then he pops back up and he pushes the windshield out. Mm -hmm. That scene is kind of replicated in a chase scene in the Marine where John Cena does the same thing. And then the character that's in Robert Patrick's car is like, man, it's like that guy's a Terminator or something. <laughs> <laughs> and then Robert Patrick looks at the rear view mirror all like serious, like that wasn't funny. Like in on it. <laughs> that's pretty that's pretty funny. And that in is 2000, funny. <laughs> in 2015, there was a, a Chinese American Hong Kong production called Hollywood Adventures in 2015. Robert Patrick is in this movie. And he approaches one of the protagonists and he's like, say, those are some nice looking shoes. <laughs> we can't, we can't get over the T-1000. Can't. And Robert Patrick is a, is a great actor, but he did such a great job in Terminator. Yeah, he really sells the, the character. You don't, you don't want to, you don't want to forget about it. And rewatching mm -hmm. this film, he... I think he is one of my favorite parts of the film. Yeah. He's one of the best parts about the movie. The movie was designed around him, kind of. Yeah. You know? James Cameron had this idea for a liquid Terminator since 84, and now he finally has the technology to do it. Damn. I want to briefly talk about some of the cast as well. Of course, Arnold reprising his role as the Terminator and Linda Hamilton reprising her role. There's a, a, an article saying that Arnold didn't want to do it, but they paid him like $14 million to do it, and they also gave him a private jet. Linda Hamilton 
um, didn't want to play the same character from the first movie. She wanted to be crazy, and that's kind of what she was in the in the movie. Except she wasn't. Like, I think crazy has a kind of a negative connotation. She was an ordinary person who one day her life changed. She knew that she would be responsible for the savior, the the salvation of mankind, and had a, the the pressure to train this kid to be a leader. Mm-hmm. She knew the date of the end of the world. How could she ever be a normal person? No, and that's why I think calling her crazy, I mean, it's not, I don't think calling her crazy is necessarily the worst thing because, I mean, she's driven mad in a way. Yeah. And I think it makes her character much more tragic, but interesting mm-hmm. as well because every of literally everything you just said, you couldn't, you couldn't find a way to keep yourself composed and calm knowing that the entire world is going to be is going to come to the brink of ex- extinction and your son is the guy who's going to save it. So that puts a lot of weight and responsibility on you. Mm-hmm. And that, that drives people mad. I think it's way more interesting instead of having the idyllic hero who is composed like a captain America style, which is just, ah, we're going to work it out where everything's going to be fine. I'd like seeing Sarah Connor be a little crazy. And it makes and it makes her way more relatable. Yeah, I look up to Captain America, but I am way more impressed by what Sarah Connor does because she she is a human and and but she keeps fighting and she keeps doing everything she can. And in the end, yeah, there's kind of a moment where it's, she kind of becomes this cold cold assassin. But even she walks, she manages to backtrack from that, which makes her even better. Yeah, she she uh, gets mad at John. For risking his life to go and save her because he's too important, yeah. right? And she makes him cry. She says that she talks. She to says him. that line. Um, uh, she's like, uh, "I don't need you." And that just shows you how distant she's become in these pat in these ten, eleven years since the previous film. Yeah, and then when John comes to save her again, she sees that like love is the thing that's going to save them. Yeah. Love is what makes him different from well, machines. Well, love, love is the solution to every Hollywood <laughs> But it's, I mean, they, they did a good job with this, so I'm not yeah, mad. She's, she's like a way more dynamic character. Absolutely. Yes. You know? Absolutely. Which is funny because you have the most dynamic character facing off against the coldest, straightforward machine ever. And it's like, which is going to win out? Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's... Oh, and also she had to go through months of training with the former Israeli Special Forces guy, uh, Uzi Gal. And apparently she never fired a gun before the training that she had to do for this movie. And it's interesting because I think Sigourney Weaver was the same way. I think she wasn't used to guns and stuff. Sigourney Weaver is very anti-gun. She's very, very mm-hmm. anti-gun and she doesn't like it. But it's it's really great how James Cameron is able to cast these women who... Maybe other people wouldn't think think like, oh, I don't think I could. I don't see her being able to have a gun. But he transforms he these women. He helps these women transform into these amazing action heroes. Yeah, it's and just, it's more than just like, oh, she's badass. No, there's much more behind it. You know, that's why they've lasted the test of time. That's why we want to see them come back, and that's why it's a treat to see them come back. Sigourney Weaver. She was she was always the best part of the Aliens franchise, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the Xenomorphs are cool. I like them, but yeah, Sigourney Weaver was was get away draw. from her, you bitch. She was always the draw for me personally. And Linda Hamilton is, while I still say Robert Patrick is arguably the best part of the film, Linda Hamilton is 
pretty fucking close to him. Yeah, like when when they stopped putting her in the movies, I stopped caring about the franchise. Is it a coincidence that one of the best received Terminator films post T two was the one that she comes back in? It's not a coincidence. Not co- not coincident. Not, not, not Linda Hamilton and James Cameron. Did you have anything else you wanted to say about T two? Because I did want to talk a little bit about the rest of the franchise, just a little bit. There's still some stuff I I want to get to. All right, go for it. Shoot. Have you ever, have you seen Eddie Furlong in a movie before this? No. Because he was he's never acted before. This it, was the first movie he's ever been in. And he did a great job. He didn't even want to be an actor, necessarily. Oh, he didn't? No. So the casting director was trying to cast John Connor. None of them were tough enough. None of the actors they tried out. And then she went to the Pasadena Boys Club and saw this kid standing by a pool. She approached him and asked him if he wanted to be in a movie. He wasn't a trained actor, but they eventually got him an acting coach, and he was able to keep the part. As John Connor. Right, so that's like the, oh, they, they found this kid in the, in the pool. That feels really inappropriate, doesn't it? That they went to a pool? That they went to a boys club, and oh, I wish I could find the video of Edward. Oh, I do have it. And it was at that point that um, we contacted the boys club in Pasadena. And then I started walking around, and there was a kid leading up against uh, the wall by the pool. This woman started staring at me and um, she and I thought she was so weird because she just stared at me and smiled at me and I'm just like yeah and I walked over to him and he was snarling at me and I said you want to audition for a movie a couple days later we get a call remember that woman you talked to in the Pasadena Boys Club and I'm like yeah and then she's well, that's the casting director for Terminator 2. They want you to go up for the part of John Connor. And I'm just like, yeah. Oh, oh, that had a happy ending. I mean, well, no shit. Yeah. Doesn't it feel a little inappropriate to go around a boys club and like stare at a kid? <sighs> Maybe a little, but. How would you feel if your kid told you there was this weird lady staring at me and smiling at me at the pool? I'd be, I'd be weirded out. Yeah. Yeah, but then you find out they're a casting director for the biggest movie ever made. And that's why this is a this is a particular instance where I'm also like it's it's for a movie clearly they tried to go through the right channels and it wasn't working. So she's like, "Well, I, I would go off this hunch. Pick it's some a- kid off the street and change his life forever." Yeah. And for the better, too. I mean, well, mm. Okay, so while filming Terminator 2, the custody of Edward Furlong was up in the air. He had a dispute with his mother, Eleanor Torres, and he never knew who his dad was, by the way. Damn. He went and lived with his mother's sister, Nancy Tofoya, and their half-brother, Sean Furlong. So the movie was released in July of 1991. In September of 91, the legal battle came to an end, temporarily. Legal guardianship was given to Nancy Tofoya and Sean Furlong, but the court-appointed lawyer, Bruce Ross, had control over Edward Furlong's financial estate. So Nancy and Sean would butt heads with Ross for more money, as they had both quit their jobs to become Edward Furlong's full-time manager for his Hollywood career, the career that he owed to Terminator 2. On the set of Terminator 2, A 13-year-old Edward Furlong met a stand-in actor, a then 26-year-old Jacqueline Domac. In 92, Edward was 15 and cast in a film called A Home of Our Own. 
During production, Jacqueline Domac, who's now 28, I think, was brought on to be the on-set tutor for the underage actors in the movie. One of the film's producers, Tony Bill, suspected that Jacqueline had romantic intentions towards Edward, who was then... A 15-year-old? A 15-year-old. Jacqueline was eventually fired from the movie when she was discovered playfully wrestling on the floor of her classroom with Eddie and another underage student. At the time, his guardians, Nancy and Sean, didn't see anything wrong with it. However, on the set of another film called Brain Scan in 93, Edward would get into fights with Nancy, his aunt and legal guardian, about how much time he was spending with Jacqueline Domac. At one point, Nancy found Jacqueline sleeping in Edward Furlong's bed. Jesus Christ. The producer of Brain Scan, Michael Roy, ended up siding with Domac and had Eddie's guardians banned from the set. In the following year, the guardians lost custody of Eddie and he ended up moving in with Domac. What? Yeah. In 94, after the statutory rape laws changed in California, that now an adult woman can be prosecuted for having sex with a minor, his aunt and uncle tried to press charges against Domac, but the suit was unsuccessful. They broke up, I believe, in 98, and Domac ended up suing Edward Furlong the next year for verbal and domestic abuse. And since then, his life has been rife with drug addiction, domestic violence, rehab, relapse, restraining orders, and other legal troubles. Jesus Christ, I had no idea any of that happened. I know about the what happened now, but yeah. Jesus. Yeah, he met his abuser on the set of Terminator 2. That is super shitty. And, and I feel like we know, like we all know that like child, child actors are in for some trouble later on. And I feel like the fact that we know that is, is very problematic of the, of the movie industry, you know? Like that shouldn't be a normal thing. Like kids in the entertainment industry are, have substance abuse problems growing up. The fact that it's become like a punchline. Yeah. It's like, wow. That is super depressing. Yep. Because I had heard about the sexual allegations that, that were mm-hmm. placed on him. Um, so I know people were upset that he was being cast in Dark Fate. But I didn't know he was abused. And he doesn't talk about this stuff. I got most of this information from an Entertainment Weekly article written in 94. And even in that article, like, I think it, it was written in 94, right? That's what I said? Yeah. That was before she broke up with him in 99. So, and it ended with like, oh, now they're happy together. And then it ends with a quote saying, oh, yeah, she's like, she goes everywhere with me. We're in love. And if we were apart, we'd miss each other. Like, he still talks like a kid. And you can see how, how young he is in this movie. Yeah, no, no. He, he's not 10, but he's young. Yeah. How old are you now? I am 26 turning 27. Yeah, as old as you are now, getting with a kid as young as he was then. That is creepy. And, you know, someone, you know, she was fired on the set of um, a home Uh-oh. of our own. She was fired because the person thought that that was super inappropriate. But then in 94, in 93, the producer was like, no. It's the, the parents that are the problem. The guardians that are the problem. 
I mean, they're, they could have been after his money because they quit their jobs to be youth managers and they were flying first class, flying friends over in, you know what I mean? Like they said yeah. that he needs to keep up his Hollywood status, so he needs to spend all this money, so we should get more money. You know, it's, it's a whole, like, mess. And we don't really know what happened except that, you know, clearly there's something inappropriate with a 28-year-old getting with a 15-year-old. I feel bad for him. Yeah, you know? it's it's so. I didn't. I didn't. Sad. I didn't know any of this. And the weird thing is, we never even talk. People don't talk about the abuse that he went. People through. don't talk about it. Which, which, look, I'm not. I'm not trying to say it excuses what he no. did, or I'm not trying to say any of that. No, 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 no. That's. I just. It's funny because the only thing I've I've heard about Edward Furlow is just how people were upset because he was a dark fate that he had substance abuse issues and that he disappeared from Hollywood. That's really it. Um, I haven't even. This is the only film I've seen him in. American History X. Oh, he was in that one. Yeah, he was the kid in that movie. But he was bold most of it. I couldn't even recognize okay. him. Okay. Oh, I I didn't even know that was him. Um. Yeah. Damn, that's that's a damn shame. Mm-hmm. Really does. Yeah, it fucks you up, man. Yeah, it's really it's sad. And you people can keep people disregard how. People think that, like, just because you're a celebrity as a kid, that means that your life is all settled. But, man, when you're a kid, when you're 13, 14, 15, you're going through such developmental... Those are such huge de- developmental phases in your life. Yeah. And, and she was in the middle of a custody battle as they were filming. That's why, I, that's, that's why I'm always going to feel bad for some of these, for these stars. Because, man, you don't, know, you don't know the half of it. You don't, you don't know what they're going through. Demi Lovato was the same thing, too, mm-hmm. man. Same same thing with Justin Justin Bieber, man. Who knows what that kid went through? Justin Bieber was sexualized at such a young age. And you have these people who are in charge of his money that see him as their like meal ticket. Like there's a Shia LaBeouf movie, Honey Boy, that's it's about that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Alright. Uh there's one more thing I wanted to talk about this movie. Something that's not yeah. as dark. So the production of this movie when they made the first movie, he had only directed one movie before, Piranha 2. And he really wanted to make this Terminator movie. So he made a deal with the producer and his future wife and future ex-wife, Gail Ann Hurd. He offered to sell the rights of the movie in order to direct. For one dollar. You, you know that? Yeah. I know that story, yeah. But okay, so for the listeners at home who don't know, go, go for it. Sorry, I interrupted. That's, that's it. He, he offered to sell the rights of the movie for $1 in order to write and direct uh, The Terminator. So when they tried to make the sequel, uh, the com- production company, which is now defunct, I didn't know that. Like, this was technically an independent movie. <laughs> Terminator 2 is an independent movie. Mm-hmm. The production company, Carol Co., had to buy the rights back to make the sequel. They paid $5 million to the defunct, now f- defunct production company, Hemdale Film Company, and they paid $5 million to Herd, his ex-wife. Mm-hmm. That's $10 million just for the rights for the movie. Yeah. That alone is bigger than the budget of the first movie. Then <laughs> they paid Arnold $14 million, and they gave him a jet. And they paid James Cameron six million and Linda Hamilton one million. That's thirty-one million dollars right there if you do the math. Back then, the average cost of a movie was twenty-five million dollars. And how much was what was the budget for Terminator Two again? 
a hundred. And the third one, and this is what I wanted to talk about a little bit earlier, but the third one is follows almost the same exact story. And it's it, it at that time it was the most expensive film ever made. Terminator three, Rise of the Machine. Really? Because of those legal issues, because of the because the fact that he sold the rights for a dollar, he had such a difficult difficulty trying to do the third one. Mm-hmm. At the beginning, after um I think after after Judgment Day 2, he wanted to do a third one, and he wanted to bring back Arnold Schwarzenegger. Arnold was enthusiastic about it, but they had rights issues. Mm-hmm. The company that went bankrupt had to sell the rights, and there was a huge, huge issues. And it really came down to this guy. What's his name? Let me, let me pull up his name. The, production, the pre-production on, on Terminator 3 is fascinating. That alone could make a great movie. Mm-hmm. It was Andrew Vajna. He was a friend of Cameron. He invite Cameron invited him and his uh, Andrew's friend to uh, early screening of term of Titanic, where Andrew found out the rights were were up in the air. Someone needed to buy them, and this is where stories start to differ because he thinks that James Cameron knew Andrew was making a move for the rights, but and but James Cameron says he he doesn't know. So Andrew bought the rights. To the Terminator franchise behind James Cameron's back. Oh my God! And James was pissed. Jesus. And Andrew went on record and saying, "Just come back and direct the film for us. It doesn't matter with what company you're making it. You're gonna make the same film." But James took it as such a personal attack. Yeah, especially because he's been fighting for the rights since he sold them. Exactly. And which I can't blame him because he wanted to make the first one so much, and because Piranha Two was such a reviled film he had to get his name out there he had to think of another way shot you know he's he's not gonna throw away his shot (laughs) no exactly so he took it and while it hit he did give up the rights and when andrew decided to move uh move on after james cameron they were looking for distribution rights and they invited all the heads from the studios to read the script to read the script of the film in a hotel room fox opted not to go out of respect out of loyalty for James Cameron. Wow. He took it so big and personal that this major studio was like, you know what? We're not going to piss off one of our A-list filmmakers to, to for this franchise. And here's the thing. At the time, James Cameron was working on Titanic, which was being dubbed as like potentially a colossal failure because that film went over budget and it did not meet its uh, its deadlines. Same thing for Abyss. Oh, really? Yeah? Yeah. It's... Something about water. Something about working in water. Yeah, so I'm like, sucks. It's funny because Avatar two. Yeah, Avatar two has been postponed consistently. That film was supposed to come out in 2016. It's been four years. Yeah, and we still haven't gotten it. It's amazing. There's just something about water that fucking sucks. But this studio, Fox, said no. You 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 crossed the line. And they moved on after that. It, but the legal details of it. It's just this person like. This person was vying for the rights and this is how much they offered, but they withheld or they withdrew. And it's insane. Yeah. Like to imagine like you created this character that didn't exist before. That's referenced in every other movie, basically. Like, I don't know if you've played Dota. Have you ever played Dota? No. Well, there's like a monster in Dota. When you kill it in like a special holiday event mode, when it died, it gave the thumbs up as it sunk into the lava. (laughs) <laughs> you know, there's a, a wrestler, Kenny Omega. He has this move called the Rise of the Machines, or the Rise of the Terminator, where he poses like the, the Terminator traveling through time, like with his hands 
on the, on the ground, and his entourage, usually the young bucks, they will, like, do the dun-dun-dun-dun. The rise of the Terminator. Do you remember those Capri Sun commercials where they would be after, like, they would turn into liquid and go after their Capri Sun? Oh, ah, uh, vaguely. Here's a commercial. And tell me if, like, this was not a direct ripoff of the T-1000. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, what the hell? Liquid cool. Liquid cool. <laughs> When did this commercial come out? After Terminator 2. 97. 97? It came out in 97, yeah. Yeah, that is a total ripoff of Terminator 2. It just shows you, like, how this movie, like, transcended... It's funny, because it doesn't even have anything to do with the drink. It's it's more with the packaging, because it's a silver packaging. It doesn't even make sense. Why are they, like, liquid form... (laughs) <laughs> Until they get onto the basketball court. Yeah. But I guarantee you someone's like, yo, man, remember that T-1000 from the Terminator 2 film? I know how we could rip that off and get a really cool commercial. Yeah. There's a there's a better one that someone did recently where it was like a parody of those commercials where when they all turned into liquid and they formed back into flesh, they were like a deformed monster that went around killing people. <laughs> It's like a parody of those like 90s style commercials. So funny. Like the Terminator is just everywhere. And James Cameron gets none of it. He created that franchise and he gets none of it. Receives nothing from the merchandise sold. Nothing from the sequels that he's not directly responsible for. And that, that's a shame. It's an absolute shame. And the fact that he feels so personally attacked by people trying to buy his rights and stuff and trying to, in a way, almost exploit his his franchises. Yeah. I, I understand why he was pissed. I get yeah. it. And that's why he he said he didn't want to come back and do the third one. And he said also that after finishing Titanic, he kind of, that gave him some perspective. And he said, you know what? I, I finished telling my story in the first two. Those first two are amazing. Yeah, they're they really they're, are. They're, they're, they're incredible. Uh, so... This is the part where we, like, review the movie, like, give it a rating. And we've decided to do this thing where we rate the movie based off of a quote from the movie. Like, the quote represents how we feel about the film. Yes. And it could be a little tough. It could be a little challenging finding a quote <laughs> that perfectly summarizes how we feel. But it's, it's a fun little thing to try. Okay, so uh, what I, I, I like how... The creation of the T-1000. I like what he represents. I like how they transform uh, Linda Hamilton into this dynamic action heroine who's not just badass. You know, there's, there's a reason why she is the way she is. For business purposes, they have to make Arnold Schwarzenegger the hero, right? But they do it in such a bold way that they, make, they actively make him not kill people. It, it makes it an anti-violence film that I... I can appreciate. And the the stuff between the characters, it's not the strongest part of the movie, but it's still really good. Um, so I think a quote that represents how I feel about this movie is, that's a good looking boy. <laughs> okay, I feel that. This movie absolutely holds up in 2020. 
<laughs> Especially with the anti-cop narrative. That, dude, it is so fucking satisfying when he shoots them with tear gas and he pulls, oh, yeah. he pulls their gas masks off of their face. He's like, hold this. <laughs> well, it's, it's so satisfying to see someone just walk in front of a hail of bullets and just not be affected at all. I'm like, drop them. And they're like shooting him, but the bullets do nothing. That was satisfying to me. I really like that. Well, I, I agree with the same thing. This film actually holds up really well. I mean, it's still one of the best action films of all time. And even though I love the first one, I, I will defend the first one. I slightly respect the first one more, just a little bit. I do not doubt that this was a difficult shoot to be on just because of how innovative they were and just how much they decided to top the previous one, you know? Just in terms of action and in terms of character and messaging as well. Uh, it's fantastic all around. It's super fun to watch. Um, I have two quotes. Um, I'm trying to decide which one. I'll just pick both. So there's a quote where John Connor calls his mom, or his foster mom, trying to see, trying to warn them that the T-1000... You don't need to explain the context of it. Just, oh, just give it to okay. me. Well, it's, it's basically, uh, Wolfie's fine, honey. Wolfie's just fine. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, but instead of Wolfie, it's Terminator 2. Terminator 2's fine, honey. Terminator 2's just fine. But you gotta, you know, you gotta say it with the same tone I that see. she does. Yeah, as, uh, you, this, as you have your hand knife in the head of your husband. Yeah, fuck him. Won't get it, won't get his bitch ass off the, off the couch. <laughs> um... But the, the second quote is, is a little bit more, I think it's just uh, symbolic as to how the, the, the heart of this film, which is um, the Arnold Schwarzenegger says, I'll take care of the police. John Connor says, hey, you swore, saying, referencing how he's going to kill them. And the term just turns back and says, trust me. Um, and that's, yeah, <laughs> I'll take care of the police. That's a good quote. I'll take care of the police. And uh, it's just trust me. Like I trust you, Arnold Schwarzenegger. I trust this. I trust you. I trust James Cameron. Well, that concludes our episode of Retrograde. Uh, check us out on social media for our updates on our next episode at Retrograde underscore Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks again for listening, guys. Um, check out Terminator One and Two. That's my recommendation. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, what's our next episode? I think we talked about it. I think we wanted to we wanted to move a little bit away from action films. We've been doing a lot of action. Yeah. Um, we want to do something a little bit different. I was thinking you you mentioned Legally Blonde. Ah, uh, yes, Legally Blonde. I've been wanting to do a horror film. We did Candyman. Yeah, but I, I'd like to do more horror films. They're they're pretty great. Yeah. Um, specifically, one that I watched uh, a few months ago, and I I want an excuse to rewatch it: The Descent. Ooh. I've never seen it. Never seen it. It's so good. Okay. And you're talking to someone who used to, who was, who grew up a scaredy cat. I hated horror films. And I've slowly gro grown to like them. And I've seen The Descent finally. And it is amazing. So we're, we're, we're thinking about two very different types of films. But um, it's, it's probably going to be one of those two films. Yeah. All right. We will see you next time. Thanks. Thanks again, guys. Bye. Bye.